for our second episode, we kind of just wanted to give you an overview of who we are and why why we like science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what got us into science, what we study, kind of just to give you some backstory to who we are before we start telling you all the things you need to know about science in the news. Rachel, how did you get interested in science originally? Oh, me and science go way back. <laughs> um, no, really. I've always been more of like a math science person. Um, so probably in like high school biology class this is the first time that I really thought about scientific research, mm-hmm. hearing the stories about like all the drama of the scientists that are making these discoveries, like Watson and Crick stealing stuff from <laughs> Rosalind Franklin. The drama like, pulled you in. Yeah, the drama pulled me in. And and I was like, uh, these people that dedicate their lives and, you know, they deal with all the drama and all the repetitive over and over again of, of science, uh, there must be something to it. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me it was somewhat similar. I remember taking a science test in fifth grade and doing really well on it. My parents were like, well, where did this come from? Because neither of them are scientists, and I don't have any science or math people in my family. And then I went and took high school biology and just fell in love with the cell, with genetics. Like, it all fascinated me, and I wanted to know everything. And I think my other classmates were annoyed, and I was annoyed at them because they didn't want to know, and they didn't care about (laughs) our fun games we played, and I was so into it. And they were just like, oh, it's DNA. We don't care. (laughs) That's so funny you say that. Um, yeah, no one else in my family is like in the sciences either. So my mom um, was an English teacher. Uh, my dad is a history major, and like everyone's in business. So <laughs> kind of like the I'm black kind of sheep of the family. Sorry, <laughs> kind of like the black sheep of the family. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I definitely have to explain things, and I have to learn how to explain things in a really understandable way but it's also been good experience for me but it's hard when someone doesn't really have that science background exactly oh my mom like what she thinks of a biologist I don't even (laughs) she got mad at me last Thanksgiving um because um she was wanting me to like brine the turkey or something Uh and I like couldn't pull the gizzards out or something (laughs) and she just goes Rachel you're a biologist (laughs) probably like mom I'm not like dissecting turkeys every yeah, day in lab I'm, oof, I'm a cell biologist mom like I look at very very small things with very very big microscopes <laughs> so that was a high school Emma but like or sorry fifth grade you said fifth grade fifth grade's last high school yeah you know, middle school high school um but how did you find your way to a PhD program yeah interesting story I went to school at NC State for genetics and then eventually added on an English major And I had some opportunity to do research during college, and that really helped show me that I liked the organizational side of research and kind of pursuing a question to understand it really well. And that led to me applying for a PhD program. And I was specifically looking for a PhD program that was more of an umbrella program, so a lot of different uh, disciplines that you could be part of, but you could kind of specialize in one. And so I ended up joining the genetics and molecular biology curriculum here at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm actually in a lab that is a cell bio lab. So I kind of get the benefit of both genetics and cell biology, which were kind of the things I first fell in love with in high school. 
Yeah, there's a lot of like a crossover between different fields and research. So mm-hmm. it's fun to be, um, especially to come in in an umbrella program where, you know, you don't you don't have to pick a specific department like genetics. Um, so you have more freedom to like take classes and meet people outside your department. It's very interdisciplinary. Yeah. And having the interdisciplinary side really helps you think differently about your questions and your project. Like I'm very glad to have the genetics and the cell biology in my project even has some physics going on in it too so I can get the the benefit of like learning how to ask questions in the way that physicists would ask it versus cell biologists and kind of discover new things about my project that way yeah and it must make things like a lot less intimidating to know that you know you're you're taking on these new physics related questions but they're physics experts to help you with oh yes and I think that's something we kind of talked about in our first episode just seeing how many experts there are around us helps you to enter into those new fields and know the questions to ask and they can just kind of guide you down this path and instead of you spending hours and hours trying to figure out this one thing you can go ask an expert and a they're willing to help you and b you figure it out really quickly and c like maybe you make them think about their science differently because they haven't like thought of it from a cell biologist yeah exactly Oh, yes. Lots of the physicist people, I have to explain to them how my cells work and how they differentiate. And (laughs) there are times that they're like questioning the cell biology. And I'm like, no, that's how my cell works. Like, I know how it grows. I know that it needs to be put on uh, something that's coated versus something that's just glass. And they're kind of like, "Okay, big difference. Yeah. So what about you after high school biology? Yeah, so after high school, I went to Rutgers University State School in New Jersey, and, you know, after hearing about Watson, Crick, and Rosalind, (laughs) you know, I wanted to get in on the action, so I um, applied to this research program and, like, quickly found my way into an independent research position in a fruit fly lab where I studied how, uh, how fruit flies make egg cells and expand to take over your kitchen. Um, I definitely have some flying around right now. <laughs> yeah, number one question I got about my research is like, how how do you kill fruit flies? Um. <laughs> I do like pulling out the trick if I find a fruit fly at a restaurant. I like, I'm like, oh, this is a male or a female. My friends yeah. are always like, oh, what magic is this? How do you know it? <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Um, but yes, yeah, I really enjoyed. Um, you know, having my own project, it was very different from the labs that we did in biology that are kind of like more cookie cutter experiments. You know what you're expecting mm-hmm. when you're really doing experiments in the lab. Like it can be a little chaotic um, Oh my goodness. And, and it can be fun. Like sometimes you could find something really cool that you weren't expecting. Um, so I really enjoyed that and I just wanted more of it. So I applied to PhD programs and kind of like Emma uh, I also was looking for umbrella programs because I had studied genetics in um, college, but wasn't sure if I wanted to stick with genetics or expand into something different like neuroscience. So uh, having the flexibility of an umbrella program is really important to me. And then I found my way to UNC. And Rachel is a fifth year grad student, so she is almost done. That's up for debate. <laughs> uh, no, there's there's a light. <laughs> a little light. You're following the end of the tunnel, and it'll just lead you to one of those anglerfish that will eat you in the end. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Rachel, what do you study now at UNC? Um, so in my lab, Natasha Snyder's lab, our lab is a little, uh, <laughs> this is maybe not PC, but we, we call our lab bipolar. <laughs> Not to I've not heard that description before. Please tell me more. I don't I I don't mean offense by that. Um but that it is like we we study very different things. So my my lab mate Kay studies chronic liver injury and I study intermediate filament proteins which are part of the cytoskeleton of the cell. You might not have heard of cytoskeleton. If you have, uh you can tune me out for the next 30 seconds <laughs> but the cytoskeleton is this like incredibly important structure and, and from the name you can kind of tell cyto means cell skeleton you know what that is it's literally the skeleton of the cell um giving the cell mechanical um support um if you think about a cell living inside a tissue it's got to deal with a lot of like pushing mm-hmm. and pulling forces if you think of like a skin cell stretching um, so it's really important to have this skeleton to support the cell. Um, not to mention like cells that are moving around your body um, need the skeleton to, to help them make those movements and, and shift around. Um, so yeah, intermediate filaments are, are a part of this network and they are linked to uh, over 70 different rare diseases. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm just fascinated by how these proteins actually work in a normal developmental context, but also what's going wrong when they're mutated and they're causing disease. And one of the biggest things that, that we see in, um, diseases associated with this family is that, um, instead of forming that nice skeleton network in the cell, uh, these proteins actually clump into aggregates which are like big clumps of protein. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're not sure if it's like that they're not folding right um, or why this is happening. It's not really understood. But we just know that, you know, we use a microscope to look at the cell. Um, We're supposed to see this beautiful um, mesh-like pattern, like a net almost, and it's just clumps of protein. Mm -hmm. Um, And this can cause some problems for the cell, right? Uh, I mean, your cells are very active. They have their mitochondria, (laughs) your powerhouse of the cell, making ATP. Um, They're like trafficking all sorts of nutrients to the outside, bringing things in. And you can imagine that like these big clumps get in the way of everything the cell needs to do to stay alive. Because does that mesh-like pattern normally help facilitate some of that, just the way it's built? Um, Yeah, so one of the main functions of intermediate filaments is to uh, dock organelles um, to structures in the cell like mm-hmm. such as mitochondria that are important for function so you've kind of lost this scaffold system um, that is important for like making sure things are where they're supposed to be in mm-hmm. the cell um, what's interesting is a lot of people have made um, mouse models to study these proteins a lot of the times, to the to the disappointment of the field, when you get rid of an intermediate filament protein, the animal is totally fine. <laughs> oh, that's annoying. But um, there are so many intermediate filament like proteins in that process, though. Yeah. Did Did you ask how many there? Are? I just said I I knew there were quite a few. So it's almost do they think there's maybe one protein can compensate for the other? That's the idea. Okay. So this family is really big, over seventy different genes. So I mean. You, you probably have, a, definitely do in, in multiple cell types, um, have more than one filament expressed at once. Um, 
So some of the filaments can have really specialized functions. Like I study glial fibrillary acidic protein, which uh, that's a mouthful. So I just call it GFAP. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, This is found in a specialized brain cell called the astrocyte. Um, Astrocytes are like support cells for the brain. Um, are they shaped like stars? Since they are astrocytes. They are shaped like stars, <laughs> and um, they support the more famous brain cell, the neuron. Um, <laughs> They're just a supporting act. Yeah, a supporting act, but so important. Um, <laughs> you know, astrocytes outnumber neurons fivefold. In the wow. Brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're proud of your astrocytes. I am so proud of my astrocytes. (laughs) Um, But yes, I was talking about specific functions of intermediate filaments. So um, like for instance, I can't remember the mechanism, but um, GFAP is important for, I talked about like arranging things in the cells. Like one of the things that astrocytes need to do is um, they do a lot of cleanup for the neurons. Um, so one of the ways that neurons like talk to each other is they um, secrete these molecules called glutamate, and that's part of how they signal to each other. And that you know too much glutamate between neurons can be a bad thing because they are just overexcited. So the astrocytes are cleaning up that glutamate and making sure there's not too much. Um, but in order to do that, they need to take the glutamate inside the cell, and that requires a glutamate transporter. Mm. Um, unique name right (laughs) um so gfap is important for you know docking of this transporter to the membrane um so that that can happen so yeah sometimes you do see if you look really hard when you knock out a filament um you can find some problems Mm -hmm. but for the most part the animals are okay um which kind of makes sense because these these proteins are for like mechanical stress. So mm-hmm. a lot of times you don't see problems until you like add another kind of strain to the right. system. And you said some of these intermediate filament proteins have been shown to cause disease. Yes. So I mentioned GFAP that I work on that's in the lovely, lovely astrocytes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mutations in GFAP cause Alexander disease, which is a very rare neurodegenerative disorder. Um, that occurs most most often in children. Um, the, the people have called it the Alzheimer's disease of the young mind. Mm-hmm. So it's basically just you know rapid neurodegeneration, um, and the patients can have uh, macrocephaly, which means they have like large heads, um, and the yeah the neurons are dying. They have defects in the the white matter part of the brains. If you look at an MRI from these patients, you can see like severe caverns. Um, in the brain so yeah bad news mm. but you are you're researching it so adding much more knowledge to what's already out there yes I mean the the hope is um with Alexander disease and a lot of these disorders linked to the intermediate filament protein mm-hmm. family we think that the big problem is these clumps that are forming um so I'm trying to understand how these clumps form and you know, is there a way that we can break them up and would that help the patients um, if we could help them to either to stop making mm-hmm. GFAP because apparently you don't super need it, <laughs> the, like the mice are alive and okay, um, or can you can you break up these clumps that are there? Um, so yeah, lots of people are working on this um, from different kind of angles 
um, there's a, there's a group in Wisconsin, Albie Messing and um, Tracy Hageman are trying to find ways to to stop production of GFAP. Um, if you just stop making the protein that's causing this problem, that will make it better. Um, and and I'm you know taking kind of a backwards approach. Um, can we deal with the those clumps that are already there? That's really cool. It's cool to see. I'm sure like the clinical aspect of your work. Oh, definitely. And I've been to um, conferences um, where I actually get to meet family members. So, you know, wow. that this is never something I thought I would be working on something so translational. Um, you know, I've come all the way from the fruit fly to, <laughs> to um, you meeting and, and talking with patients. So it's been really fun. But enough about me. <laughs> so, Emma, I hear you work on uh, alternative splicing. Yes. Before What's that? I, before I talk about alternative splicing, our my lab, I'm in Jimena Giudice's lab at UNC, and we look at muscle development. So our goal is to understand like the basic molecular le- mechanisms underlying muscle development so that we can better know how to respond to certain muscular diseases like muscular dystrophy, especially like the myotonic dystrophies. We study alternative splicing, and this is how one gene can code for many different proteins. Within humans, only 2% of our genes are protein coding genes, but we have so many different proteins that are expressed in our body that there needs to be some way to account for this. And that's where alternative splicing comes in. So you can have only just a few genes, but many proteins that result. So the benefit of this is you can have a lot of protein diversity and something that we see in certain like tissues in the body, specifically in our brain, what Rachel studies heart and skeletal muscle, which is what I study, we see that alternative splicing is really high in these tissues. And what we've seen with splicing before is that it can be used to mature a tissue. So in the case of heart and skeletal muscle, they're both muscles that need to contract in order to survive and in order to do their functions. So what we see with splicing, if you think of like a baby's floppy muscles versus an adult's toned muscles, that change in muscle structure comes about by alternative splicing. And we see splicing important in the ability of the muscle to contract too. So if you look at a baby's contractility versus an adult's, the adult can contract a lot better. And you may wonder why we're interested in this besides just that it's interesting in development. But what we actually see in the case of muscular dystrophy, specifically like myotonic dystrophy, which is similar to Duchenne muscular dystrophy and in in how it presents itself, but it's different on the molecular level. A lot of these muscular dystrophies, people have muscle weakness and muscle atrophy, and you also see changes in alternative splicing. So you see this adult splicing pattern change back to the baby splicing pattern, and this results in you're not able to contract the muscle as well. Your muscles start to get floppy again. So we're really interested in how this transition happens normally so that we can understand what's going wrong in disease. And something that I'm specifically looking at in the lab is how mechanical forces affect this process. So I kind of mentioned with muscular dystrophies, you see muscle weakness and muscle atrophy and kind of a loss of force generating in your muscle. And this is happening at the same time that the splicing transitions are happening. So I kind of wonder if mechanical forces are interfacing with splicing transitions. And if, if we understand both things that are happening, could that be a better indicator of how to understand muscular diseases. That's really interesting. So going back to just the alternative splicing, mm-hmm. I mean, 
to what degree does that happen in other animals? You know, like, is this what separates us from the monkeys? <laughs> yeah. So in, in mice, like it's very similar levels of alternative splicing. But if you look at other organisms, they have a lot less alternative splicing and that leads to them being less complex. I think I'm trying to remember. I think it's one of the worms has more genes than human has than humans have. But because those genes aren't necessarily coding for protein, it's not a very complex organism. Right. And it makes sense. I mean, I think one of the biggest surprises from the Human Genome Project was that, you know, we don't really have the, the number of genes between us. And mm-hmm. actually, like, the, the sequences, there's only we're only, like, 0.1% different from monkeys. Right, <laughs> You know, right. we're expecting we'll have so many more genes. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of that is due to how the genes are expressed and how they're spliced as well. So a lot of my day-to-day work, I get to poke cells and see how stiff they are, and I get to stretch cells, and I get to see how cells stiffen. So it's a lot of weird physics experiments, but it's been it's been fun to get to learn a new side of research. But it's amusing because I hated physics in college. I still don't really understand it, but I like the concept of physics. But anytime you give me a math equation, like my brain just shuts off. <laughs> There you go. We don't get to pick. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to follow the science. Yep. And you're surprised by it. Yeah. But it ends up being a cool route in the process. And I think that's why most of us come to grad school is you just get to pursue so much knowledge. I mean, there's very few jobs where you can just spend the whole day researching or working on a new software or trying to figure out how this gene pathway works. Like we have so much freedom to look at read the literature and come up with hypotheses and test those hypotheses and so many other jobs just have to get something done right away and you don't have time to think or create through through what you're learning so that's just a little bit about us if you have any more questions about what we do i'm sure we'll do more videos on this more podcasts on this in the future i have a question emma yes what do you do when you're not in the lab oh what do i do i love to read Since I was an English major in college, like reading and writing are some of my favorite things to do. So I actually have a blog and I I try and read 52 books a year, kind of run a little behind this year with lots of grant writing. Sorry, how many books a year? 52. 52. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good, it's nice to be able to still read science stuff, but kind of get my mind away from the science as well. And then I, I think the other things I do... I really love to work out in the gym and do weightlifting. It's just, not only is it great for my body, but it's so good for mental health as well. And I started doing that in grad school and it's been one of my, probably one of my favorite things that I do. Totally. I think it's so important to like do something active. I recently took up um, long distance running and it's been like just a great stress reliever. Oh yeah. Although my calves hurt a lot today. (laughs) Rachel ran nine (laughs) miles today before coming over to my house. Nine miles. (laughs) I can't stand. Emma, drive me home. (laughs) (laughs) I probably could. (laughs) Rachel, what do you do in your spare time besides run until your legs hurt? I run until my leg hurts. Um, I Yeah, I also like to read, but not quite 52 books a year. Uh, Maybe 10 if we're lucky. Um, Hey, any reading is good. Yeah, no, it's fun. I'm in a book club with another lab, the Gupton Lab. Um, They do a book club? Yes. Would you like to join? Yes, I want to join. Okay, I'll let you know. Well, I was the last person to pick a book, and I picked I Am Malala. 
um oh, great was that book. the oh yeah I w- totally recommend it um i think it was a little heavy for the book club i don't think anyone read it <laughs> if you sign a book i will read a book like fantastic let yes please You're in let me club. know <laughs> yeah no that one is fun because um every you know every member of the lab picks a book um like one once every month and a half or so and so we end up reading like really different kinds of books you know things Mm -hmm. I never would have picked out uh and I also play in a cover band I play alto sax so what's your band's name we're called the lids because we do covers oh my goodness that's (laughs) genius yeah so so that's fun yeah it's we've something that UNC's been really supportive of is encouraging grad students to do other things outside of the lab because many PhD programs want you to kind of kill yourself for five years and produce data and papers and that's important but you don't want to have your mental health or your physical health go down the toilet just because you're working 80 90 hours a week definitely like the working that many hours is just not sustainable for five years five plus years (laughs) definitely not I mean this is a marathon it's not a sprint yeah (laughs) 